Well, good morning. As we sing that song, one of the things I would encourage you to process through and think about, maybe ask yourself this question, what does it mean for me to worship? What does that look like? How do I do that? Now, this morning we're going to be talking about finances, and we're going to be uh, talking about money a little bit, and... um, so that's one of the, the reason I say that's one think about that is that's one of the things that's worth thinking about as we talk about money. It's about issues of worship. And we're going to touch on some of those issues this morning as we talk about money. Because in the particular, in the second part, we're going to wrestle through, we're going to look at a tension that is going on in the whole conversation. Now, also, as I was thinking about this whole conversation, give me a second to cough. Oftentimes, people might say to themselves, oh, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Have you ever had, heard, have you maybe felt that way or heard someone say that? Every time, you know, they're always talking about money. So we're going to talk about money this week. We're going to talk once more about it next week, and then we'll probably leave it alone for a little while. But, um, but we're going to try to answer some of that question, too. Why, what's some of the reason for talking about that? And part of the responsibility as a pastor, in short, on some of that, is God has given us a responsibility to talk about the full aspects of Scripture and to talk about some of the full framework of what goes on. And money's a pretty big issue in people's lives. And we're going to see some of that as it's fleshed out. And there's tension, a lot of stuff that goes on as it centers around money. So we want also, then as we teach people, as we build into people's lives, we want to see good balance, good boundaries, good discipline, good routines, good thinking, all that kind of stuff going on in people's lives. So it's important to touch on it not necessarily valuable to dwell on it. Understand the tension? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll try to jump into things this morning. Father, this morning, as we take some time to talk about money, as we take some time to look at some of the principles that are here for us to wrestle through and think through this morning, Father, I would ask that you would guide our time, that you would build it into us. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, one of the things that we see here, and as you see it at the top of the, of the outline, and you can see that right here, the, it's in the bulletin, um, the importance of planning or counting the cost. And if you were to take that kind of to some of its logical conclusion, learning to budget. Now, here's one of the things that I would say to you that's interesting. In our culture today, budgeting is pretty important. We see that in so many different areas. And you will hear about the whole conversation of budgeting on many different levels in many different places. And you'll hear about that whole conversation in many other places besides in the church. But here's the other thing that's kind of interesting. There's not an exact chapter or verse that you can turn to that says to you, budget. Did you know that? There's not a single chapter or verse that says to you, you should budget. But there are principles that are there that guide us. And so we're going to walk through a couple of those principles this morning and then step into some other things. But let's start in that first place. Luke chapter 14. And this is probably one of the key places where people will look at the importance of budgeting or the importance of counting the costs. And, and this is that whole conversation that many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with. And Jesus is teaching, and he says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Excuse me. Or, what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In this whole conversation, we see the significant importance of counting the cost, of looking at things and measuring things and saying, and asking yourself the question, how can I do this? Can I complete this? Do I have the resources? Do I have the ability? Do I have the time? Do I have the various things that are involved and necessary, do I have what is needed to complete what I'm seeking to pursue? Now, all of us live in this place. All of us do. Every week, we ask the question, do I have enough money to put gas in a car? Do I have, mo- have enough money to put food on the table? Do I have enough money to pay the bills that are going to come in, to pay for the heat, to pay for the water, to to, to pay for the electricity? We all ask those questions. We all wrestle through those questions. And those are some of the questions that get asked. And we consider and we count the costs. And as we wrestle through those various things, we said, okay, well, I have this, 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 and this coming. And I have these resources here, though, therefore, I need to hold off on this or I need to wait on this. I need to postpone that. And we start to wrestle through those questions and we wrestle through those observations. That's all part of counting the cost. And I would suggest to you that on a very basic level, that's budgeting. Now, that's probably not budgeting the way that people might define budgeting. But that's the beginning stage. It's the beginning process of budgeting. But it's counting the cost. And as you kind of start to walk through this, we start to see absolutely clearly that it's important to start to count the cost. It's important to be proactive, intentional as we look at things and measure, is what I'm doing going to be successful? Do I have the wherewithal, the means, and fill in all the various blanks to accomplish what it is I'm seeking to accomplish? That's the beginning part of budgeting. Another example of this we would see in Genesis, and I find this wonderfully interesting. But we go to Genesis chapter 41. And this is with Joseph and Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph's in prison. I think it's the baker or the candlestick maker. I forget the other guy that was there. But one of them remembers Joseph. (laughs) Could be the butcher. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I, but there's, I know there was the baker and the other guy. Right now my brain is not remembering the other guy. But one of them lived and one of them died and one of them was restored to his role in, a, in, in, in the palace. And the, king, the pharaoh is now having these dreams and, and his wise men aren't being able to answer the question. And the guy goes, oh, I remember that guy I talked to in prison a couple of years ago. He's still there, you know. He's still languishing in prison. We can go talk to him. And so, so Joseph is brought up, they clean him up, they stand him in front of Pharaoh, and, and this is kind of what goes on. And so it says, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile. 
when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and grazed among the reeds. After them, seven, seven other cows, weak, very sickly, and thin, came up. I, I've never seen such sickly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. Then the thin, sickly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. When they had devoured them, you could not tell that they had devoured them. Their appearance was so bad as it had been, was was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After then, seven heads of grain, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed the seven good ones. I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dream means the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what is about what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, sickly cows cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind are are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. So now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. What was God talking to Pharaoh about? And what was, there was a number of things going on here. God was letting Pharaoh know what was going on. In the bigger picture of things, God was about the process of bringing Jacob and his kids to Egypt to establish the nation. They would then in 400 years depart when Moses came and and brought them to the promised land, the establishment of the nation of Israel, and that process would move forward. And God was doing this for the preservation of the nation of Israel. But in this whole process as well, God was communicating. And what did... What was the outcome of the conversation of God to Pharaoh and then Joseph to Pharaoh? The outcome was plan according. Make a plan. Here's a plan. Here's a strategy. Here's what I think you need to do. Here's the issue that's going on. Here are the things that are going to take place. Plan accordingly so that then as these issues start to come about, as these problems start to manifest, as these years of famine start to raise their head and start to destroy our world as we know it, we need to plan in advance, i.e. we need to budget, we need to instead, but they're not saving money at this point. 
what we need to do is we now need to put all the resources, all the grain, as much of the food as possible. We need to set it aside. We need to store it away because we know that in seven years, we're going to have famine like we've never seen before. So we need to plan. We need to budget our food. We need to manage our food so that when that time comes, we will be able to survive. We need to plan ahead. Now, the outcome of that, the long-term result of that, is that God, Pharaoh appointed Joseph. Joseph led that process. And as the world, the known world around there, started to experience famine, everyone heard there's food in Egypt. And everyone started to go to Egypt for food. And they had the resources to give, not give, to sell. People in the land needed food, and they were able to sell. And it enriched Pharaoh. It made Pharaoh very rich. But they were provided for. They were taken care of. And those, because God gave this vision to Pharaoh, and because God gave godly counsel to Pharaoh through Joseph, and because Pharaoh was wise and listening to wise counsel, everything worked out. Doesn't mean that people weren't hungry, doesn't mean that there wasn't hardship, doesn't mean there wasn't difficulty. But what took place is they intentionally started to plan, they intentionally budgeted, they counted the cost. They measured the cost, they measured the need, and they developed a strategy to accomplish what needed to be done. That's budgeting, by the way. That's budgeting. See, when you start to walk through scriptures, we don't have an exact chapter or verse that we can necessarily go to where God says, Budget. But we do walk through scripture And we see God saying, plan ahead, be proactive, be considerate of what's going on, and plan. You know, when when you talk about Solomon, and and Solomon talks about this in in the Proverbs, and and in particular he says, have you considered the ant? Twice in Proverbs he talks about the diligence and the importance of the ant, and how the ant works hard, and how the ant works throughout the year to, to store up in a savings system. They don't have a king, they don't have a master, but they all work together and they, and they harvest and they plan and prepare so that as there is need, then everything is provided for. And he talks about that twice in the, in the book of Proverbs. He, he walks through that conversation. The importance of planning. It's huge. It's vitally, vitally important. And you see that throughout Scripture. And again, I would say to you, you look at our culture. All around us, you see planning. All around us, you see budgeting. Now, one of the things that drives people nuts in our government is that they budget and then they don't follow the budget. Okay, that drives people nuts. A number of years ago, that was a huge conversation. We need a balanced budget. We need to live under the balanced budget. And people said, yes, 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 yes. And then they would go to the bank and get a loan. The problem is when we do that, what happens? We end up 
bankrupt because if we borrow too much and we can't pay it back, we haven't fully counted the cost or correctly counted the cost. Now we find ourselves upside down. And next thing you know, we have creditors at our door taking from us the things that we had purchased with the money we borrowed because we didn't effectively count or consider the cost. So we don't see in Scripture necessarily talking about budget, but we do see Scripture talking about the importance of counting the cost, of planning, of being considerate and thoughtful with how we organize and plan our lives so that as we navigate through life, we are doing so successfully. Now see, part of the issue here then is that the conversation taking place is actually bigger than just money, isn't it? Overwhelmingly, we often apply it to money, But the conversation is actually much bigger than just money. One more thing stands out. One more example I'll give you on this. It's in 1 Chronicles. And this is David. David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build, quote-unquote, the house of the Lord. Now, by the way, Just an aside. People talk about the house of the Lord. Where is the house of the Lord today? It's not here. That's right, it's here. Now, oftentimes, I'll have this conversation with people. And they will refer to this room as the sanctuary. And I say, no, that's the auditorium. Why do I do that? Because where is the sanctuary? Right here. Because as you person comes to a relationship with Jesus, this is where the Holy Spirit resides. He doesn't reside in here. He resides here. Okay? So if you listen to me talk about these things, I say this is the auditorium, this is the sanctuary. Okay? Now that sometimes changes how you see things, but Dan, David wanted to build the temple, and in the temple was a sanctuary, and that was important because what happened at that period in history is that the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, came down and took up residence in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. God physically manifested himself in the temple, and that's why they went to the sanctuary, because that's where God was physically manifesting his presence. Now, after the death, burial, and then resurrection of Jesus, we read through Scripture and it becomes clear that God changed what he did. The Holy Spirit was no longer present in the temple, but rather the Holy Spirit became present and resident in the lives of every single believer. And again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Ephesians where the Holy Spirit is that guarantee, that deposit that God gives to every single one of us who are in Christ as a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Now, that's an aside, all three. Let's go back now to to David and building the temple because he wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build something amazing. He wanted to build something beautiful because David loved the Lord. And this is, again, amazing. David was this incredibly flawed individual, has done some amazing things, and also did some amazingly despicable things. 
And he wanted, but he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. And he wanted to build the temple. And God said, no. David, you're you're a man of violence and blood. And I don't want, you're not the one I want building the temple. I want your son to build the temple. But it didn't mean that David couldn't plan. And so we read these verses here. And so it says, So David gave orders to gather the resident aliens that were in the land of Israel, and he appointed stone cutters to cut finished stones for the building for building God's house. David supplied a great deal of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the fittings, together with an immeasurable quantity of bronze and innumerable cedar logs because the Sidonians and the Tyrians had brought a large quantity of cedar logs to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly grand, famous and glorious in all the lands. Therefore, I will make provisions for it. So David made lavish preparations for it before his death. He couldn't build it. And God said, David, you're not the one to build it. But he counted the cost that was going to be involved in building it. And he made sure that everything his son would need to build it was going to be there. So that when it was time for it to be built, it could be built, it could be glorious, it could be amazing. And it would be there to be a testimony to the amazingness of who God is. He counted the cost. Counting the cost is really important. Now again, in our culture today, in many ways, when we think of this financially, we boil this down and we talk about this in the area of budgeting. But maybe you want to say, I'm not, I don't don't like that idea of budgeting. I don't like that word budgeting. Okay, let's set that aside. And let me just ask the question. How do you intentionally count the cost of how you will live and what it takes for you to live the life that you're living? How do you do that? We need and should be doing that. We should be intentional in that process. And if we're not being intentional in that process... We're being irresponsible to ourselves and for ourselves, with ourselves. Because then, if we're not being intentional, we have a real opportunity to leave us ourselves high and dry. And on top of that, if we are not doing that, we have all sorts of opportunity we will miss out on. Because we haven't counted the cost. And then really asked, what margin now do I have in my life? to do great and wonderful things for God. So it's really important that we learn the significance and the importance of counting the cost. I would say it's important for us to learn the value of budgeting. Now, people do it in multiple of ways. Joan and I, we have budgeted since day one of married life 
actually before that, both of us budgeted before we got married. And since day one of married life for the last 35 plus years, we have budgeted. Consistently through our married years, we have had a monthly budget. We've kind of looked at our month. We've said what, we, we looked at our year. We divided our year in 12. And we said, what does it cost normally to live? We looked at our utility bills and we said, okay, roughly what does it cost for our utility bills for the year? And then we would divide that by 12 and try to set that aside. And we would look at other bills and other responsibilities. We would divide those things by 12. We would measure that out. We tried to count the cost. And as we do that, then we start to have the opportunity to say, okay, what do we need And now if we're making more than what we need, what do we do with the extra? And what opportunity do we have with the extra? What do we get to do with this? Because here's the other thing that often happens with people. Because they don't count the cost, they just live with what they have. And so if what they have increases, how they live increases. Because they're not being intentional in counting the cost along the way. And again, then we miss the opportunities that exist all around us to do good things. To bring glory and honor. We talked about this last week. The opportunity to be generous in ways that impact the kingdom of Christ. We miss those opportunities if we're not counting the costs and considering the structure and framework that God has given us and how to live. Now, in this whole conversation there's a significant component that we need to keep wealth in God's perspective. And so I really love the tension that goes on here in this whole conversation. So let's kind of walk through some of the other verses that then flow around us. And we're also then going to look around the verses that talk about building the, building the tower and the king negotiating with the army that's coming to him. Because what, what I didn't read in that section were the verses above and below. And we're going to read that down here because we're going to see the tension captured in that conversation. So let's start in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Some of them, someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Excuse me, friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He told him, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Wow. Our lives are not made up of the abundance of our possessions. And you can look around our world and you can see people that have incredible abundance And they're miserable. I was online. We're looking through one of the news things last night online. And um, all of a sudden, I forget her name. But I think it was Kanye. And what's her name? And I guess supposedly he's engaged now or whatever. This is one of the news articles, you know. And some of the, the snarky stuff that go, is going on. And I just look at this. And just this, this here. here are people that are crazy rich. Crazy wealthy. Are they happy? Are they living with contentment? Are they living with peace? Are they living with joy? No. That, that whole attitudinal agitatedness of life kind of just percolating. You can see that all through our culture. People who, who will have incredible wealth, 
but are not happy, are not fulfilled, are not satisfied. Why? Because life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and all my goods there. In some ways, this almost reflects the conversation that Joseph had with Pharaoh, except for the fact that there was going to be a famine coming up. But the guy said, I have an abundance. What do I do with this abundance? I should save it. I should put it aside. I should, in a sense, kind of bank it. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, who will be, whose will they be? Again, the whole adage, you, 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 we come into the world, we're going to read this verse in a little bit, we come into the world with nothing, we're going to leave with nothing. Everything we have and everything we accumulate at some point in time, it's going to be dispersed, it's going to be distributed someplace else. We're not taking it with us. As the old saying goes, there's no U-Haul that follows after the hearse. Although they did try to do that in Egypt and other places where they built pyramids and they built other things and they put all this wealth into these places thinking they would have that. And what happens? People break in later on, they find all this stuff there and they cart it away. That is how is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The response says, you fool, you've, you've stored up stuff, you tried to accumulate incredible wealth, I'm, I'm now able to live indulgently. Tonight your life is accounted for you. We continue on down in that chapter. We, go to, we continue that conversation. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or, or about your body or what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you are than the birds? Okay? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Have you ever noticed that? When we worry, we, we, we stress, and we have this anxiety. And it, and it doesn't add a moment to what we worry about. All it does is semi-ruin what's the moment we're in. And, you know, the whole, the whole conversation, the whole aspect of worry doesn't necessarily accomplish a whole lot. Intentional planning, thoughtful preparation, troubleshooting, those things aren't bad. But the whole process of worrying, not a great idea. And since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Is that... If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Why? Because we are significantly more valuable to God than the lilies of the field. We have incredibly much more value. All that we see around us was created so that we could enjoy that, but God did all this to place us here so that we could live in it, but also so that we could have a relationship with him. God did not create the lilies of the field so that he could have a relationship with them. He placed them here so that we could enjoy them, so that they would be a pointer and an indication of who God is and the amazingness and wonderfulness of who God is and the wonderful the, the nature of his creativity, aspects of his beauty, and helps us to consider and think about the, the character and the nature of who God 
God is, but they are not there so that he can sit down and have a conversation and contemplate the lily and think how awesome I am. No, he did that so that we could have a relationship with God and so that we could look at and think about who God is, but he did all that stuff. He put all that stuff here so that he could put us here and have a relationship with us. So what's really important in all of creation is not the lily, although it's wonderful, and he made it, and it's really cool, and it's beautiful. He did all that stuff because we are what's really important. He said, and you are what's really important, but if I do such wonderful stuff for the lily, imagine how important you are to me. And if I take care of the lily, that really doesn't have any significance on the whole picture of things, and yet it's beautiful and I take care of it, how do you think I'm going to take care of you? In other words, I'm going to take good care of you. Better than it took care of the lily. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has, given, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes nor near, and no moth destroys. We're saying, guys, don't, 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 don't start accumulating. Don't worry about the accumulation here. Worry about what you're setting aside for eternity. Kind of coming back to the conversation we had a little bit last week. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart follows where we invest. You get that part? Our heart follows where we invest. It's not so much we invest where our heart is, but rather our heart follows where we invest. And he's having this whole conversation, and he's saying, guys, that guy with the barn, he had it wrong. He was thinking about accumulating, uh, uh, amassing, so that he could live and be indulgent. I want you to focus on me, worship me, trust me, walk with me, depend upon me and not worry nearly as much about all that stuff as this guy did and I'm going to take care of you. And that's part of the conversation that's going on. But we continue. Then we jump down to chapter 14 and we now look at the front and the back of that conversation that took place with the towers and the soldiers. Then we start at verse 25. Now great crowds were traveling with him so he turned and said to them, and this is, this is one of those verses that goes a little bit. It says, Now, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we have to ask the question, is he saying hate everybody? No. That's ultimately not what he is saying. But he is talking about the attitude with which we consider these things. Are these the things that are the driving values and the driving priorities? Or are there other driving values and priorities that should be present in our life? He continues the conversation. Who does, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? And that's where the conversation goes. What's he talking about? 
He's saying, guys, have you considered the cost of what it means to walk with me? Have you considered the cost of what it means to have a relationship with me? Have you considered the cost of what it means to follow me in this journey? Because ultimately, as he talks about the tower and as he talks about the soldiers, he is not talking about just in general planning. He's in particular talking about and placing it in the context of are we intentional and are we thoughtful as we consider what it means to pursue and live and walk in relationship with God and how we can counted the cost. How we counted the cost of eternity. How we counted the cost for today. And have we really taken the time to sit down and ask the question, what is this importance and what is the significance of me walking with God? Because overwhelmingly in our culture today, we don't count the cost of what it means to walk with God. Walking with God is like a garnish. Walking with God is the the side dish. Walking with God is maybe the dessert. But walking with God is not the main course. And God is suggesting to us that walking with him and knowing him is the main course. It is the primary thing. It's that thing that we should be focused on. And therefore then, we should be counting that cost. And we should be asking that question, what does it mean for me to walk with God? What does it mean for me to live in relationship with God? What does it mean for for me to prioritize these things in my life? And, And how does that look? And how does that go? And so now as we talk about counting the cost, we're not just talking about dollars and cents. We're talking about a whole different set. Of, of values and priorities and a whole different set of things that are incredibly valuable to us because now we're talking about eternity. We're talking about our time. We're talking about our energy. We're talking about purpose. We're talking about value. We're talking about meaning. We're talking about all of these different things that are incredibly significant that have a totally different value than a dollar bill. But we should be considering and counting the cost of all of these things as we consider life and as we contemplate life Because walking with God and knowing God and having a relationship with God is something that not just impacts the here and now, but also totally impacts all of eternity. And we should absolutely be taking the time to consider the cost of what it means either to walk with God and know God or to not walk with God and to not know God. To consider the cost of what it means for us to align our lives with God's values, what it means to align our lives with God's priorities, or what it means then to step away and to do something different. The challenge here is that we should be about the process of considering the cost. See, it's more than just budgeting our money. Budgeting our money is part of the process of counting the cost. But we need to be counting the cost. And it's a much bigger conversation than just finances. Because when we start to get to this bigger part, we realize that finance is just a segment of a larger set of things to consider. A larger set of areas of life that we need to measure and evaluate and count the cost in. It's not just the money. But let's continue. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build and and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, here it goes again. 
We didn't read this the first time, but now here's the back part of this whole conversation. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should, not, should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. count the cost. In our world today, we are totally fixated on so many levels on wealth, affluence, comfort, power, position. But there's so much more to life where we need to be counting the cost. Let's go back to the earlier illustration. How much better is it to have a relationship with someone that lasts a lifetime instead of fighting over issues and letting money drive you apart? That's an issue to consider the cost. How do do the things that are going on in your life affect your relationship with your kids? All part of counting the cost. And the, 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 the list just goes down. There's things we should be counting the cost in. And one of those key things that we should be counting the cost in, the primary thing we should be counting the cost in, is how do we live in relationship with God? Let's continue. What's interesting, we then find ourselves in Luke 22. So the events in Luke 12 and then Luke 14 are probably a couple weeks apart as you kind of walk through and kind of follow through the progression of Jesus' ministry and the things that are going on. And, but this is also as Jesus is starting to wind down his ministry, as he's starting to orient towards Jerusalem. We then come to Luke 22, and now we're a number of months after chapters 12 and 14. Four months maybe after chapters 12 and 14. And the shift that has now taken place is that Jesus is about to be arrested. And, and the nature of ministry and the nature of all that has been going on is about to shift significantly. He's about to be arrested. He's going to be executed. He will rise in three days and he'll be with the disciples for 40 days and then ascend to heaven. But now everything that's going on has totally shifted. It's about all to totally shift. And he makes this statement to the disciples just before he's getting ready to be arrested. He also said to them, when I sent you out without money, without money bag, without a money bag or a traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, not a thing. Now, go back and listen later on. And he sent out the 70 and he sent them out to minister and to teach and preach and to cast out demons and, and do all sorts of ministry stuff. And they went out. And as they went out, he said, don't bring, your, don't bring a purse. Don't bring a change of clothes. Don't bring extra stuff. Go. And as you go, you're going to be provided for. And so that was part of the faith-building journey that he was sending them on and identifying the importance of living by faith, of learning to trust God to provide. 
You ever in life have a training exercise? And you sit down in a, in a training period or training opportunity and the instructor goes, okay, this is what I want you to all to do. And you go through something and they walk you through a little microcosm of something that's going on. And it's a training exercise and you learn something in that training exercise. And it's not necessarily intended that to be the lifetime tool, but it's a piece and you go through that lesson process. That was the lesson process. That was a training exercise. Learning to trust God's provision. Then he said to them, Verse 36, but now whoever has money, has a money bag, should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he, he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. So, okay, guys, what we did here has now shifted as we now transition to the new paradigm of what is taking place, bring a change of clothes. You might need to bring a sword. You have an extra jacket, bring it. You have a money bag, bring it. Why? Because now it's different, and the way that they count the cost and the circumstances have changed, so now we are going to consider the cost and prepare for what's taking place differently than we did here, because there the circumstances were one day, one way, and now here the circumstances are different. We're now at a different point in time, we're in a different set of circumstances, and how you react to these circumstances are different than how you responded to these over here. And again, it's all part of that process of counting the cost, isn't it? And again, we see that whole process in the the whole world of budgeting and all that kind of stuff. We go through those periods of abundance and we go through those periods of lack. Four years ago, stock market was going up, money seemed to be flowing and and things seemed to be inexpensive. Money was cheap, people could borrow money and and boy, we, we, we functioned in one set of ways. Now today, inflation is up. Basically, from what I understand, we are in a recession. You know, the stock market has crashed. Cost of money has gone up like crazy. So what do you do? Do you function now here the same way you did over there? No, you function differently here. Why? Because the environment, the circumstances have radically changed. And so you adjust to the new sets of circumstances. Same thing with the disciples. New paradigm New set of circumstances, adjust. But it's still about the issue of learning to trust. He went back to the exercise and said, guys, what did you learn there? You learned to trust. You still need to live and walk by faith. Hebrews. Excuse me, not yet, Luke 16. Now, in the midst of the conversation that Jesus was having earlier... Um, he made these comments and then he turned to the religious leaders. He says, No servant can serve two masters since either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all of these things and scoffing at him. Again, why are they scoffing? Because they love the thing, one thing and they despise the other. They love their money, they despise the truth of God. Even though they were the religious leaders, their, their values and their priorities were radically out of line. And he told them, 
You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Now let's jump to Hebrews. Bring that into more perspective. Hebrews. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, may we boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Who can do harm to me? We come back to the whole context of learning to live by faith and learning to trust God and live in dependence upon the provision of God. Now, that doesn't eliminate and it doesn't take away the importance of planning. It doesn't do that. But around all of that process of planning and under, undergirding it and, and over top of it is this whole process of, of living in a sense of confidence. Okay, God, these are the things you've given me. These are the... These are the things that are happening in my life. Help me to live in a way that honors you. Help me to live in a way that reflects your glory and honor. But God, also, I'm trusting you, but also, how do I manage this well? How do I carry this well so that I am providing and taking care of those things that need to be addressed? How can I live in such a way that allows me to, in some ways, live with generosity and and to say thank you and to bless others? How do I do this? And again, we come to that whole conversation, whole process of considering the cost, count the cost. Again, that's where I would come back and I would say there's significant value in the area of budgeting. One more verse. This is Paul's challenge to Timothy. He's he's talking to him and he's extending his final, or some of his, not his final, but some of his challenge to Timothy. He says, but godliness without contentment Excuse me, but godliness with contentment, not without, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses." So in this whole journey that we walk in, in the whole journey that we process in, there are so many things that we need to be taking into consideration, things that we should be measuring, things that we should be evaluating as we count the cost. Because the counting of costs covers way more than just money. But also as we wrestle with this journey, we need to come down and and wrestle through the process that money is a pretty important thing. And in our culture, it has been driven at us again and again and again and again and again that the goal of life, the primary method of life, in the way that we measure who, who, who has won and who has lost is on the process of who has the most. Now what's interesting to me is this. All throughout history, God has blessed his children. He's blessed them all throughout history. Joseph started out in a prison cell after his brothers sold him into slavery. 
But he finished his journey as Pharaoh's right-hand man. God blessed the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God gave them wealth. When you look through the the Old Testament, you look at the promises that God makes to the nation of Israel, he promises them abundance, he promises them provision. What's interesting is all through the flow of history, you will see God blessing his children. But the tension we have to wrestle in is that we need to then recognize that as blessing will flow into our lives, it's the provision of God but we then shouldn't just become indulgent. We need to continue through this whole journey to learn what it means to live by faith and to count the cost because the cost we are counting is much larger than just dollars and cents. It's the cost of our walk with God. It's the cost of the impact that God has placed us here to have. It's the cost of the opportunities we either take advantage of or we miss. There is so much more to the journey than just dollars and cents. But at the same time, what we do with dollars and cents is very important. And it's important for us to learn to manage what has been entrusted to us so that we manage it well. Now, we're going to walk into that more next week. We're going to talk about the whole process of stewardship next week. So why do we sometimes talk about money? And why do we talk about these things? We'll lay into it more next week. But if we're doing it correctly, we're having a conversation about these things because these things are core to what it means to walk a spiritual journey in a way that brings fulfillment and satisfaction to our lives, that allows us to live our lives in alignment with God's values and priorities. And because our resources are just a small part of a much bigger picture of how we measure and consider the cost of life. And sometimes it's very difficult to have a conversation about some of those bigger pieces without talking about some of the smaller pieces. Because the small pieces fit into the big pieces and vice versa. Making sense? Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you so very much for your richness and your goodness to us. And I thank you for the abundant ways that you do care for us, for the abundant ways that you love us. Father, I just pray as we take these next steps this morning that you would just watch over us, that you would care for us. Thank you, Father, so much for your richness and your goodness. Amen.